Robert, I noticed something for the first time while I was traveling the roads in Texas. All of the buttercups and uh, black-eyed Susans face the light. They stand in the light. And I guess as blossoms just track across the sky as the sun makes its arc. But everywhere we drove, those buttercups and black-eyed Susans were pointed toward the light. That's what I want you today. I want you to point to the light. Turn that blossom full into the face of the Son of God and let His light shine on you. Somebody said after the early service, I am leaving with a lighter heart than when I came. And I want that to happen in you too. You're burdened down with all the cares of the world and the trouble that's come upon you and may the, maybe the problems that seem so intractable I want you to turn your blossom into the light today. All right? Now, the Transform series that I'm starting today seeks to explain and understand the work of God in the daily life of the believer so that we are being transformed on a daily basis from glory to glory into the image of the Son of God. And what I'm going to do is start today with the resurrection, which is no surprise to you, because it is fundamental. Everything else is predicated upon the resurrection. You, my friend, would never heard of Jesus of Nazareth if that grave had not been empty when those women came on Sunday morning. He would have died in obscurity and been forgotten. And I want you to think with me about why that grave is open and what it means to you today. And then in the future, what is the presence of the Spirit of God, the living Christ, mean in your life now as we move along in the Transform series. We're building toward Pentecost Sunday when the Holy Spirit was sent by God as a gift to the church and the church was birthed. All right? Today I'm in Mark chapter 16. We've been marching through Mark, the passion narrative of Mark, which is half of his little gospel. I'm going to start with verse 1 and read eight verses of Mark chapter 16. This is the culmination of the whole story of the arrest, the trial, the beating, and the crucifixion of Jesus. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, 
who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The cross was an awful moment for everybody who loved Jesus. It was terrible and tragic in every way. Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, and Joseph of Arimathea, two powerful and important people, took down the body of Jesus from the cross. The Jewish leaders did not want a body hanging on a cross during the Passover, and the Passover started at sundown. So on Friday, as the sun was waning, these two men took the body of Jesus and they carried it to a garden and laid that body in a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased. He was a wealthy man. No one had ever been laid in that tomb before. They closed it up and the Roman governor Pilate put a seal on that tomb and a couple of guards outside, maybe several of them outside the tomb. The cross a symbol of execution, a Roman method of capital punishment, adorns almost every tomb outside these doors. It never struck me till I saw the sea of crosses reflected in Katrina's floodwaters. I was standing on the parking lot. A helicopter dropped me off right outside here 11 days after the storm. And I looked out and there was every cross visible twice, once in the water, once standing above the water. The most visible cemetery in America, Greenwood Cemetery, is a sea of crosses. Does it strike you as strange that the Roman method of execution now adorns these tombs. When we come to Easter Sunday, we come in the wake of a terrible Friday and a dark Saturday when the women wept and the disciples hid. And it seemed like light seeped out of the world. You deal with death Easter morning. In fact, the importance and impact of this particular celebration, this particular day, is proportional to your understanding of the inevitability and finality of death. 
these ladies came to the tomb that morning not because they suspected it would be open and the body of Jesus gone, no. They came to complete what they'd begun on Friday, putting spices on the body. That was their custom. And they bought these spices and brought them on that first day of the week to that garden tomb in order to finish what they had begun. These are the last rites. This is their custom for burial. Every generation and every people have burial customs. I notice that every community through which I travel, here and everywhere else in the world, has a common feature. It's not just McDonald's or Walmart, all right? Every little hamlet on the planet has a cemetery where they bury their dead. They all do. You drive through little Mullen or Moshim, Pleasant Grove, and there the tombs stand out in the meadow marking the graves of loved ones who have passed on. When I was 12 or 13, my grandmother died. I didn't know her very well. She'd come to visit us not too long before she died. But I received the news of her death at a great distance. It did not seem very close to me. And in my young adult years, my other grandparents died. And that's the way it goes. We deal with death. We deal with the death of loved ones. Some of you gather here on this Easter Sunday. And for the first time, you are worshiping on an Easter when somebody you dearly, desperately loved is gone. It's your first Easter. Without that mother you loved so much and she loved you, without that father you looked up to and respected, it's the first Easter you've had without her, without him. And the wound is fresh and the wound is deep. And even now, maybe months after their death, you are looking for the consolation that comes with your faith. We deal with death this way. Even our own death seems to loom large as we grow older. My eldest daughter, Rachel, has a very big birthday tomorrow. I won't tell you how old she is, but you can guess. I said to her, are you dealing with your mortality, daughter? And maybe she was a little bit. But I'm the one who's dealing with mortality because I'm a generation older than her. Everybody knows they need to prepare. It's possible that we are not going to die. There are some who are going to remain alive into the coming of the Lord Jesus. 
That's what Paul says in his letter to Thessalonians, you know. Those who are alive and remain till the coming will be caught up. So we hope we're the generation that'll be caught up. That when this same Jesus, they laid in this tomb, who rose from the dead, comes back to this planet visibly, physically, to the planet, he's going to receive his church and we'll be caught up together with him to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we are to comfort one another with these words. So there is the possibility and even the expectation that the Lord Jesus is going to return and we're not going to have to taste death in the way that previous generations have tasted death. But for thousands of years now, every generation of Christians, every generation of believers has had the expectation that the Lord could come in their lifetime. He left it open for a reason. He wants us to continue to look to the horizon with the expectation of His coming. But whether He comes in glory, in the flash of lightning, visibly to the planet that He made, or whether He comes for you, in the dark of night and takes you alone death is coming and we deal with it we prepare for death with wills bequeaths and legacies and the older we get the more we worry about our legacy it seems how we will be remembered it was Katrina that caught me that taught me that I have no power over how I'm going to be remembered. The circumstances of life come upon you and you live through the circumstances that you cannot control. But God controls. I urge you to deal with death, even as a young person. 246 teenagers are unaccounted for a whole high school class almost in South Korea who presumably perished in that fairy disaster. They had plenty of time, the reporters say, to call their moms and call their dads while the ferry was sinking. They texted the ones that they loved and had conversations with them before they disappeared into the water. You do not know. You have no guarantees. My father taught me from the time I was a little boy, really. He said, David, always be prepared to pray, preach, or die. You can quote that. <laughs> I've had people quote that. In fact, Don Cooper sitting here on the front, he demonstrated he was ready to pray, preach, or die not too long ago when nobody showed up to teach, and he just stood up and did it. <laughs> Told me, always be ready. Pray, preach, or die. Are you ready? How do you prepare? They were going to prepare the body of Jesus. How do you get ready? I want you, this Easter Sunday, to come and visit the empty tomb, all right? I want you to look inside, like John did, breathless, in his foot race with Peter, once the ladies finally told him what was going on, these two disciples ran. And John says, I outran him, and I got there first. And I looked inside, and I saw the napkin that was over his face, folded in a place by itself. And I saw that linen garment that we wrapped him in. It was just like an empty cocoon laying on that rock shelf, and there was no 
Jesus there. I want you to visit the empty tomb on this Easter Sunday like they did that day. Some people think, oh, I'm too educated to believe that tomb was empty. I want, I want to share with you something, okay? No matter what your education level or IQ, every person on the planet knows that the dead they bury in the ground don't come back. We bury them, we leave their bodies in the cemetery, and they remain there. That is the universal experience of the human race. The dead stay dead. There is a finality about death that we all experience. We wish we could talk to them. Sometimes people talk about spirits, but we know the bodies remain there. Every generation for 6,000 years of recorded human history accepts this fact. You don't have to be a biologist or a physician or a preacher or an engineer or a physicist to understand it. We all do. We all know it's true. Death won every time. My grandparents' graves are not open, nor are their parents before them, nor their parents before them. Death has won every battle on the planet. There is this one incident that we've just read about. In this incident, it is recorded that there was a man named Jesus from a city called Nazareth who was with great public view killed by the Romans on a cross and buried in a tomb. And this one time the record says what we know of him on the third day he came out of that grave never to die again. One time in human history the grave was vacated by a man who never died again. Think about that, would you? That's the record. Immediately, the Jewish leadership said, the disciples came and stole the body. As if that's an explanation that somebody might buy. Why they would do that, how they would do that, these frightened men. Stealing the body. Somebody said, they went to the wrong tomb. Well, Pilate made sure that they knew which tomb was the right tomb. He sealed the tomb. He marked the tomb. He put people outside the tomb. They knew which tomb it was. Somebody said, well, he didn't really die. It was the Passover plot. They drugged him on the cross and buried him while he was still alive, and he 
came out of that tomb three days later, beat up, bruised, bloody, and wounded, claiming he had never died and he was the Son of God. Those are the main theories. It's almost the exhaustive theories of how that tomb got empty on that Sunday morning long ago. I want you to decide why the tomb was empty. You think about it and you decide. There is evidence here that demands a verdict, as Josh McDowell said. And as a skeptic, Mr. McDowell began to study the empty tomb, as many people have done. Why is there a church? Why were there people in that very century who said the grave was empty and they had seen the risen Christ? Why were these frightened disciples willing to lay down their lives rather than dispute the truth of the resurrection or deny that they had seen Jesus in his resurrected body? Why did not eyewitnesses come forward? Why did the authorities not produce the body of Jesus? There are so many whys. But as I told you before, it's a universal truth. When we put people in the grave, they stay there. We all understand it intellectually in our mind. We know. But this one time, I want you to think about what happened and why that grave was open. While you're thinking about it, let me just tell you. The story says that Jesus of Nazareth in his resurrected body could come through walls and doors even though they were shut. He appeared among the disciples with the doors being shut. The resurrected Jesus did not need to have the stone removed to get out of that grave. He didn't. So why is the stone removed? Well, it's these women. They were going to anoint the body of Jesus, and they were the ones who were wondering, who's going to move the stone? It was for them the stone was removed. It was for Peter and John, who came later to verify what the women said, this crazy story that somehow the grave was empty and somebody told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's why the grave was empty. That's why the stone was moved. The stone was moved for Peter and John and Mary and Mary and Salome and David and Judy and Paul and John and Mary here in this generation, here and now, so that we could examine an empty grave and ask ourselves the question, is this man Jesus of Nazareth, son of David? Is he the person he claimed to be, the promised one? Is he the Messiah? God's messenger and the savior of the world. You could go through this process and think about the empty tomb and even come to the conclusion that yes, the tomb was empty and Jesus was gone and intellectually assent to it and still not have your life transformed. 
See, this is the thing. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a believing in your heart that goes on about this empty tomb, about the resurrected Savior, about Jesus of Nazareth. You've got to embrace it. This, my friends, is a matter of faith. It's a matter of you stepping out of your intellectual objections and your rationality and saying, okay, one time this grave is empty. What do I think about this? And if the evidence demands from you a verdict that Jesus indeed was the special Son of God and the Savior of mankind, then you believe it in your heart. You receive it as the central truth of all life. This is how you deal with death. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Jesus didn't die on that cross to make peace with death. Some of you may be gathered here ready to celebrate the resurrection as if it were one of the many mythologies about spring and new life. And, you know, God always gives you a second chance. And so that's how you take the resurrection and, and Easter. That's what Easter means to you. And that's a good thing, okay? That's not what the empty tomb is about. Amen. It's not about you thinking, well, God's going to give me a second chance. You know, I messed up. God, get... That's not what the empty tomb is about. The empty tomb is about you making a decision concerning a person, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you dismissed him and you set him aside and you thought he's a good man, he's a prophet, but he sure didn't come out of the grave, I want you to reassess on this Easter what you have decided about Jesus of Nazareth. You seek Jesus, the Nazarene, the angel said, that's who I want you to seek. Seek Jesus the Nazarene on this day. Is he dead? Is he alive? Is the grave empty? Jesus didn't die to make peace with death, to make peace with sorrow, pain, or tears. Jesus didn't die to make peace with sin or make peace with the devil. Jesus died to make peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus upon the cross brings peace with God. See, it is the sin problem that troubles you. It is the guilt. It is the shame. It is the failure. It is the thing that plagues you. You never shake. It is the looming specter of death Jesus died so that we could have peace with God through him. When he died upon the cross, when he rose from the dead, he trampled Satan under his feet. Where, O oh death, is thy sting? Where, O oh grave, is thy victory? 
We have a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no more dominion over us. Jesus intends for us to see that he left that grave, that he is risen. God intends that we will be transformed by this news. We will live a different kind of life. We will deal with death in a different way. Even when somebody we love dies, we will not sorrow like those who have no hope. We believe that one time, Amen. One time, the grave was defeated, and the man who died came out of that grave never to die again. This is our faith position. It is our faith statement. His name is Jesus. We confess Him as Lord, and we believe in our hearts God raised Him from the dead. And we believe He is the firstfruits of those who sleep that all those who trust in Jesus will follow him in this resurrected life. This is what we believe. God so loved the world, including you, that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes, believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. This is the central truth of our faith. It's the reason there are churches built on planet earth. It's the reason people assemble into these families and fellowships of faith. Because Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Something remains for you on this Easter Sunday. There is a kind of Easter worship that needs to happen in your heart. When I baptized the folks just a little bit ago, I told them, when I put you in the water, I want you just to let go, okay? Don't hold back. Just let go. Just sink into that water. Just like Jesus' limp and lifeless body was laid upon that slab in that grave, they carried it there and they just laid him down. I want you to just lay down in this water. One of these days, they're going to lay you in a tomb. If Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, your limp and lifeless body will be laid in a tomb. But you have the opportunity to completely surrender to the Christ who died for you upon the cross and was raised the third day and just let go and give it up and give it all to the one who gave it all for you. Turn loose, let go, sink into that water and let the God who raised Jesus from the dead bring a brand new life into your old frame. No more shame, no more guilt. The old is new, is gone. The new has come. There is transformation in the cross of Christ and the empty tomb for every person in this room. New life based in faith. Robert Woodson is quoted in the Wall Street Journal yesterday the head of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, goes all over America looking at the most desperate situations, visits the prisons, has done all this stuff. He's quoted as saying, you know what really changes prisoners? 
spiritual transformation. He said, I don't understand it. I don't know how it works, but the people who get a new life after drug addiction and alcohol addiction and time in prison, the people who get a new life are the folks who have a spiritual transformation. It's true. There's one way to start over. It's by receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior. Believing with your heart, God raised him from the dead. Sinking into that water with a complete surrender. Saying, God, everything I got is yours. Let's bow together. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, what a great day to make this your Easter worship. What else could it be? What else could you possibly do today to worship the God who made you and loves you and sent his only son to rescue you except to say, Lord, I believe you died for me on the cross and rose from the dead. Would you just pray that prayer? Make it a prayer of faith. Make it a prayer of surrender. I want you in my life. Just tell him that. Forgive me for my sin. I receive you into my heart. Lord, I pray today that you will be pleased, God Almighty, that you will be pleased by our worship in this moment of decision. In Jesus' name, amen.